Thank you, Mark. Uh, I apologize for having a tie. <laughs> my, my wife actually, I had to sign a note that I would always do that just so that I don't off um, offend her. Uh, you guys look pretty civil, actually. I, I got to go a number of years ago to a meeting of the um, Free Software Foundation. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember the first sales, um, Star Wars movie when Luke um, Star, uh, Starwalker came in and meet, met Han, Han Solo. And do you remember the, the band that played there? <laughs> and there was like one of every conceivable type of humanity in the band. And that's what that conference looked like. <laughs> but like I say, you guys look more civil. Um, just a couple of other things about me. I, being an a academic is my second career. The first one was I founded and ran a, a company with several MIT professors to make products out of a set of advanced materials that they had developed. The company has become quite successful, but I always had wanted to be a teacher. So as the company hit its stride and I was hitting age 40, with the support of a great wife, I decided if I was ever going to do it, I better do it. And so I bailed out, put the two, number two person in charge, and I became a doctoral student all over again at age 40 with five kids. It was really stupid. <laughs> but in, in some ways, I'm glad I did it in that sequence because I brought with me a set of uh, puzzles that I probably wouldn't have thought about had I just been a beginning-to-end academic. The other thing that you should know is about a year ago, I had a stroke and a clot came from somewhere and lodged itself right inside there where you fabri fabricate your speech and your, your ability to write. And it just killed my ability to speak. Um, so over the last year, I've, I went out to Logan Airport and got a copy of Rosetta Stone for English and um, been working through that. Um, so you'll see that I, I'm speaking more slowly than normal. And sometimes I just can't come up with the right word. And so those of you in front, if, if you know the word I'm looking for, just tell me. And, um, and you'll also notice that I'm, I will uh, speak to the floor. And it's not that I have become shy all of a sudden, but if I look at you guys, you d distract me a little bit. <laughs> And by focusing on the floor, I can sometimes find it easier to find the word. So I apologize that I'm on that way for a while more. I, the, the biggest puzzle that I brought with me, well, there are two of them. The, the first one was, I wonder, I wonder why success is so hard to sustain. Now, if you look across the sweep of business history, most companies, which at one point were widely regarded as unassailably successful. A decade or two later, you see them in the middle of the pack and often at the bottom of the heap. And uh, the strange answer to that question was that it's, I decided that it was actually the principles of good management 
that we teach at places like Harvard that sow the seeds of every successful company's ultimate demise. In other words, if you do everything right, as we teach you, you'll fail. Um, and I want to talk about a, a little bit about that uh, this morning. And the other puzzle that I brought with me is I wonder if the enterprise of creating new successful products and businesses truly is intrinsically a crapshoot. And, you know, the way you could frame the problem is the venture capitalists try to pull into their firms some of the smartest people in the world. People bring to them uh, proposals that they ask to fund, and they put, put together a team of people that study this thing out the gazoo and, uh, and model it and stress it in every way they can, get smartest people they can find to come in and, and understand it and put their holy water on it or not, you know. And then when they finally decided that this thing is going to succeed, they put their money in. And it turns out that they're right one or two out of ten t times. And so if ostensibly the small, smartest people in the world throw their guts into this thing, and they can only be right 10 to 20% of the time, is the creation of new businesses a crapshoot? And I decided in this case that it's actually not a crapshoot. There isn't a cookbook yet, but there are a few things which, if you just do, you'll find that the probability of, of success is much higher than more, most of us think, given history. And so that's the hope that you guys will have at the end of my piece this morning, is that I really do think that success um, can be sustained and that building new businesses isn't as uh, problematic as historically we, we had thought. And I'll try to pause a few points in the time for you to throw cannonballs or criticisms or questions in my way. Now, what I wanted to describe here, first of all, by the ellipsises, is that you can almost um, diagram the history of every industry in this way, in one's, one sort or another. And the one in the middle is where most industries start. And I put it there because in most histories, the early products are very complicated and very expensive, meaning that only a few people who have skill and money can own and use the product. And then the larger um, ellipses are meant to represent people who have not as much money and not as much skill. But when you can make products that we can sell to them, it greatly grows the, the market. And the ones that start it in the middle almost never drive it to the periphery where many more people have access to it and they get killed. So let me describe this model that we call disruption that emerged from my questioning. 
So I'll plot on the vertical axis the product or, or service over time. And in every market, there are two trajectories. The first one is there is an ability to utilize improvement. Now, there's always a distribution of customers. So at the high end, very demanding customers who have very complicated problems, they will never be satisfied with the best you can give them. And at the bottom of every market, there are simple folks with simple problems. And you can overserve them with very little. So that's the first element, is in every market, there is an ability to utilize improvement. The second is, in every market, there's a different trajectory of improvement that innovating companies provide as they keep introducing better and better products. The most important finding about this is that the tra trajectory of, of performance improvement almost always outstrips the ability of customers to use the improvement. A, few th a way to visualize that is go, big, go back to the mid 19 80s when we were first learning to do a word processing on our early personal computers. Do you remember how often you had to stop your fingers to let the Intel 286 chip catch up? Because the world's fastest processor couldn't keep pace with our fingers. But as Intel kept introducing faster and faster chips, a few uh, years ago when they introduced the first 3 gigahertz Pentium 4 processor, they had shot way beyond the speed that most customers in mainstream applications could use. And there are a few people in the fourth standard deviation who still need faster chips. Now, some of the innovations that help companies move up that trajectory are just incremental year-to-year -year improvements. Others of them are dramatic breakthroughs. For example, in, in, in telecom, the transition from analog to digital and digital to optical were dramatic breakthrough improvements that cost billions of dollars. But it turns out that the purpose of the breakthroughs is the same as the incremental ones in that all they're trying to do is sustain this trajectory of improvement on which they compete. And what we found is that almost invariably, the companies that are the leaders in their industry on the left-hand side before these battles of sustaining innovation begin, find themselves still on top of the industry when these battles of sustaining innovation come to an end. And it just doesn't matter technologically how difficult it was. If the purpose allows the leaders in an industry make better products that they could sell for better profits to their best customers, always the leaders win. But there's another type of technology that invariably kills the leaders. And we call this one a disruptive innovation. We use the word disruptive not because it was a breakthrough improvement, but instead of sustaining that trajectory, it disrupted it by bringing to the market a product or service that is so much more affordable and accessible that a whole new population of customers now can own it and use it. And what we found is that invariably, it was an entrant company that came in and killed the leader when disruption occurred. Those of you who remember a bit of this, um, 
in data processing, there was a company called Colonet here in the Boston area that, that built data uh, software that was hierarchical. And they, they uh, worked on um, mainframe computers. And then a crummy little company uh, on the other coast called Oracle came around. And they introduced a, a relational-based technology that, according to the standards of what was uh, the purpose for which Colinet made its products, the relational-based software was not nearly as good. And then it got better and better and better out here in the middle competition and uh, pulled all of the customers from the middle into this one. And then at a, a larger uh, uh, circle, uh, um, Salesforce.com is doing the same thing. And that's the mechanism by which the leaders get killed. And what I'd like to do is just illustrate the dilemma that this uh, confronts us with by going back in the history of computing. And those of you who have a little bit of gray hair might remember that there was a company here in the Boston area called Digital Equipment Corporation. And digital equipment through, through almost all of the 70s and most of the 80s was probably the most widely admired of all the companies in the world. And whenever you read explanations about why they were so successful, inevitably it was attributed to the brilliance of their management team. And then about 1988, digital equipment fell off the cliff and began to unravel very quickly. When you then read explanations about why they had stumbled so badly, it was always attributed to the ineptitude of the management team. Same folks running the company. Well, for a while, the way I framed it is, geez, how could, good, how could smart people get so stupid so fast? And that is the way most people accept the demise of digital's, uh, digital's demise as most, is that somehow a management team that had its act together at one point was out of its league at another. But the reason why the stupid manager hypothesis just didn't feel right is that every mini computer company in the world collapsed in unison. It wasn't just digital, but Data General, Prime, Wang, Nixdorf, Hewlett Packard, Honeywell. And these guys, you'd expect them to collude on price occasionally, but to collude to collapse was a stretch. <laughs> and there just had to be something fundamental going on. And it turned out that this simple model was quite helpful. So for those of you who don't remember this, digital made a class of computers that we called mini computers. They were about this big. But we called them mini because they were much smaller than the mainframes. They sold for about 250K. And the selling process involved a lot of training, support, service, and software. You had to have the cost like that in the business to play in the game. Given that kind of a cost structure, they had to generate gross margins of 45%, and the product sold for 250000 bucks. And that's how they made their money. Now, in their environment every year, people were coming into senior management 
with ideas to make the next generation products. Some of the in, uh, things that they were thinking about entailed going to the very high end of the blue trajectory, making better computers than digital had ever made before. In fact, these would be so good that you could start to do on that small platform things that previously had to be run on a mainframe computer. If you looked at those businesses, they promised gross margins of 60% and you could sell them for twice as much. Now, while the management was trying to decide if they should invest in those products, there were other people saying, guys, you don't get it. Would you please open up the, the window and look out? Everyone is buying personal computers. Are you nuts? And they would look out and indeed they could see that everybody in the 80s were buying personal computers. But they could see a couple of other things. The first one is, do you remember how crummy those early personal computers were? In fact, Apple sold the Apple II as a toy to children. Not a single one of digital's customers could even use a personal computer for the first 10 years that the PC was in the market. And that meant that the more carefully they listened to their customers, they got no signal from their customers that the personal computer mattered because in fact it didn't to them. And then when they looked at the business plans, it looked a lot worse because in the best years, they promised gross margins of 40%. They were headed to 20% quickly and you could only, only earn those uh, paltry percentages on machines that you could sell for 2,000 bucks. And so really the choice the management had to make was, geez, I wonder if we ought to make better products that we could sell for better profits to our best customers. Alternatively, maybe we ought to make worse products that none of our customers would buy that would wreck our margins. <laughs> what should we do? And it really is a dilemma. <laughs> and these principles of good management that we teach, that you should always listen to your customer and always focus investments where profitability is most attractive, they provide very good guidance as you move up that blue trajectory. But then when, of th when one of these things happen, and again, it's a disruptive technology that makes what historically was complicated and expensive this now makes it affordable and simple so that a much larger population have access. Then those principles of good management makes it almost impossible for rational people to go after it. And that's the innovator's dilemma that emerged from my work. Can we just think about where else in the economy over the last 30 or 40 years this happened where Somebody made something that uh, incubated at the bottom or simple end of the market and then moved up to the point that it killed the leaders. I'm sorry? G yeah, it's absolutely in the process of making this happen, isn't it? Where else do you see it? Yeah, yeah. So the whole movement has gone through, but... Blockbuster got knocked off by Netflix, and Netflix is now trying to move up market and knock off the ca cables and, and some others. Yes? Uh, Wikipedia has sort of destroyed the world of 
Wikipedia knocked those guys off. Absolutely right. Any of you heard of a company called Toyota? Do you remember how they did it? So they didn't come in with Lexuses, did they? They came in with a rusty little subcompact in the 60s called a Corona. That's the American brand. And then they went from Corona to Tercel, Corolla, Camry, Avalon, Forerunner, Sequoia, and then a Lexus. And General Motors and Ford were back there on the blue space making big cars for big people. And they'd see Toyota coming at them from the bottom and they'd say, you know, we ought to go get those buggers. And they'd send down a Chevette or a Pinto. <laughs> but then they would compare the profitability of doing a simple product like that versus the, pro the, the pro profitability for making even bigger products for even bigger people. And it just didn't make sense to defend the least profitable part of the business when you had this option to make more money. And now the game is over for Detroit. Who's killing Toyota? Hyundai and Kia, the Koreans, they've stolen the next wave at the bottom away from Toyota. And it's not because Toyota's asleep at the switch. Now why would they ever invest to defend the least profitable part of the business when they have the privilege of competing against um, Mercedes in the luxury end of the market? And then uh, Cherry is coming next from China. And seriously, none of us have to work about, worry about them at all. Um, and we could go on all day. We could talk about how um, Autodesk started out on, uh, on the simplest of the PC platforms. Could only do really simple things. And then step by step moved up market and just blew out the prior uh, leaders in that field. Now, um, what I'm talking about here, I hope you can see, is two sides of a coin. The first one is, what's the kind of innovation that could, till, could kill your company? And then the other side is, geez, if I want to start a new company that could kill a leader, how would I do it? And uh, I want to go another, recount another uh, story that was quite useful for me in understanding again why the leaders in the middle, how, how you can predict what they will do. So one of the biggest um, disruptions in the history of mankind, actually, was when the micro, microprocessor disrupted the vacuum tube. And you've got to really have gray hair here to remember this. But up until the mid-1960s, almost all consumer electronics products were made with vacuum tubes. And they were about the size of a child's fist. Um, in a television, there were about 30 vacuum tubes. And that meant that the, radio, the televisions had to be like this. Cost about $2,500 in today's money. And that meant that only the biggest, the people who had the big, biggest apartments and the biggest uh, bank accounts could own one. Um, 
the transistor came along and it was disruptive because it couldn't handle the power required to be used in the market that existed. Every one of the vacuum tube companies took a license to the transistor from Bell Laboratories and they, crammed, they, they took their uh, license into their own labs and framed it as a technological deficiency. In other words, the transistor just isn't good enough yet to be used in the markets that exist. And as a, as a group, th they spent in today's money about $3 billion through the 50s and 60s trying to make solid state electronics good enough that it could be used in the market. And these are the, these are the giants of the industry, RCA, uh, General Electric, Westinghouse, Zenith. And while they were trying to make the technology good enough, out here, competing against non-consumption, meaning they're trying to make it affordable enough that a whole new population of people can access to it. The first application was a hearing aid in 1951, because you couldn't make this thing with vacuum tubes. And then in 1955, uh, Sony introduced the, the first portable radio. Ten transistors, two bucks, fit in your pocket. And boy, it was a crummy product. Uh, Static-filled, a very tinny sound to it. My brother and I, I was raised in Salt Lake City. We saved our, uh, took our savings of a dollar a piece and we bought one of these things. And we had to stand west to the Great Salt Lake to get reception. But we were thrilled with this crummy product because it was infinitely better than nothing, which was our other alternative. <laughs> and it allowed us to do things that were impossible, like we could sneak out and listen to uh, rock and roll out of the earshot of our parents. Had Sony tried to sell its crummy radio to the parents who had a nice RCA in the dining room, it would have been judged to be crummy. Then in 1959, Sony introduced the world's first portable television. Again, a very simple product, but by making it affordable and simple, a whole new population of people could now have one because it was infinitely better than nothing. They were delighted with the simple product. And so a booming new market emerged out here in this new, new uh, mar uh, market, and the vacuum tube companies in the middle felt no pain. And then by the, the late 1960s, solid state electronics started to be good enough that you could start big product, make pro big products with it. In the next five years or so, all the customers got sucked out of the, ce the center from the, the uh, vacuum tube uh, center of, pop, pop, of uh, competition into this new one. And every one of the vacuum tube companies vaporized. And it's a very sad story because it's not that the vacuum tube companies lacked vision. RCA saw the technology long before Sony did. It's not that they lack commitment. The guys in the middle spent easily 30 times more money trying to make the technology good enough that it could be used in their market. 
But that was the rub. Their framing was it would, use, it would be used in the existing market as opposed to used in the in emerging market that they enabled. And you could just see how in order for this new technology to be used in the back market, solid-state electronics had to be more effective and more cost-effective than the existing technology. And during the 50s and 60s, that was a very onerous uh, hurdle that RCA had to uh, surmount. And Sony, because they were competing against non-consumption, they made products that were better than nothing, and that's all they had to do. And then little by little, it got better and better. And that's the mechanism by which um, this happens. Um, I just say one other thing about this, and that is when this occurs, I point this on the vertical axis, it always has a different measure of performance. And so people in the back look at this and say it's crummy, and the people in the front don't care because they measure it in a different way. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, online learning which is disrupting the Harvard Business School, although nobody at Harvard would say that it is, but, <laughs> but it is. And uh, the reason why is in the back where the traditional universities play, the way you, you measure whether Harvard is a better school than Cornell and that is a better than Utah State is the quality of their faculty, which is measured by their research and what schools did they get their PhDs. And somebody that doesn't have the same pedigree as Harvard faculty are judged to be not as good. But out here, competing against non-consumption, the way they measure performance is teaching, oddly. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys ever take a, a courses online, but holy cow, this is good and getting better, even while we're back doing all of our research. Um, the University of Phoenix, which some people would describe, give the, that, wor that word is almost like an epithet. Sony was the same, incidentally. Um, those guys, University of Phoenix, are spending $200 million every year, making software be better in teaching. And I guarantee you, Harvard spends this year about zero trying teaching better. Anyway, that's enough. But this is the, so things, to, what do I want you to take away? One, worry about the bottom when you're thinking about who could kill you. And if you want to kill somebody, get them at the bottom. Because if you come at the bottom, it's like if you're a little boy and you want to kill a giant. You don't want to ever uh, head them uh, where it matters to them, but you want to pick a, f a fight where the giant is motivated to flee rather than fight you. And, uh, and then the second one is when you think about how big is the market? It will appear as if the blue is the biggest market, 
But in reality, almost always, if you make something affordable and simple, you find that that market is much larger, um, even though at the beginning it looks like that that's not true. Um, oh, I'll just say this. Um, there's a lot of stuff being hoped for in green energy. And you just take solar electricity as one example. Um, the U.S. and European governments so far have spent about $30 billion trying to make solar electricity good enough that we could use solar electricity in America and Europe. And uh, it's about seven years away from being cost competitive versus power over the grid in Europe and America. Seven years away. It's been seven years away for four, 45 years. <laughs> and it's still because the, the existing system is getting better. And most people are trying to beat them on a sustaining innovation. Um, and it's, it's just a, a pipe dream. It'll never happen. Uh, if we tackle green energy in the context of America and, East and Western Europe because the existing products are so good, to beat them is very difficult. And while I was uh, worrying about this, um, our daughter, Annie, got sent by our church to go to, Korea, to Mongolia as a missionary. And she worked there for a couple of years. And when she was done, she invited my wife and me to come. And she gave us a guided tour of Mongolia. And Annie, in the capital of Ulaanbaatar, um, took us to this massive open-air bazaar. And we happened, along, we happened upon a set of vendors that were selling dirt cheap solar panels, where it wasn't created out of uh, silicon wafers, but just uh, glass with, with thin film on glass. And uh, they were uh, packaged with um, small six-inch black and white televisions and, and antennas. And these things are going out the, the market like you can't believe. Well, it turns out that about half of all Mongolians don't have access to power over the grid. And therefore, solar energy is better than nothing. Who cares if it was uh, how, uh, cloudy today? I couldn't have a TV yesterday. And amongst the two billion people in South Asia and Africa who have no electricity, Solar electricity is a booming market, growing at about 50% per, per year without subsidy. And my guess is whether it becomes viable in America isn't through massive government grants to MIT, but it's just the folks uh, competing against non-consumption, starting with a simple product and then making it better and better and better. And that's the mechanism by which it actually will become viable in America, not by somehow expecting that we can uh, 
um, shoot, that wasn't important. <laughs> now, um, the next one is uh, there have been a few companies that have uh, caught disruption and became the leaders in the old, even while they were trying to continue to make the core business more and more profitable. But in every case, they did it by setting up a completely different business model and giving that new business model the charge to kill the parent. Uh, and that's the only time they have ever succeeded. So again, if I stay in computing, um, IBM dominated the mainframe business. There were nine other competitors. IBM was the only one that made it into the mini-computer uh, disruption. The other nine got killed. And IBM did it by, they continued to make their mainframes in Poughkeepsie, but they set up a different business unit in Rochester, Minnesota, and gave it the flexibility to make money with 45% margins, whereas the mainframe required 60% margins. And there were about nine companies that made mainframes, or mini-computers, and IBM was the only one that survived the transition to the personal computer. And they did it by setting up yet again a different business in Florida that could make money at 25% margins. The other mini-computer companies like Digital got killed. And then IBM then made the next transition into a services company. And the model that you get in your mind is like in biological evolution, individual organisms don't evolve. They're born, they die. But as the mutants gain market share, a population can evolve even though the individuals within it do not. And you kind of get the same sense in competition here that a business unit wasn't designed to evolve. It's organized to do a particular thing very well. But, uh, and they have to be born and they die. But a, a, a corporation can evolve as it starts new business units and shut down the old ones. And, and that's where the flexibility came from for IBM. But nobody else um, thought that they ought to create new business units. Now, I'll just go over this. I want to come to the next one. Now, this is an idea that is, we're trying to figure out, is it truly intrinsic? Uh, is, uh, is innovation a crapshoot, or is it more predictable? And it turned out that this one is really very important. So what we decided is that the customer is the wrong unit of analysis when you're trying to develop a new product. And the way that we have taught marketing is that you should always listen to your customers. And we've concluded that that's wrong. Because, you know, here I am, Clay Christensen, and I got a bunch of attributes and characteristics. And there is a problem, there's, there's a correlation between my having these characteristics and the propensity that I'll buy this product versus that product. But my characteristics don't cause me to buy anything. What causes me to buy something is 
you know, stuff happens to me every day. Jobs arise in my life that need to get done. And I, cause, I hire products to do the job for me. The causal mechanism is I got a job to do. And that causes me to go out and pull something into my life that gets the job done. And the conclusion that we reached, and this is not a semantics. It's not an issue of words. <laughs> but it's, it's of substance that understanding the job is critical to succeed with the new product. And I'll describe it with a story, a silly story about milkshakes. So um, this is one of the big national uh, fast food restaurants. And they were trying to goose up the sales of their milkshakes. Um, and you walked into their, their, uh, one of their restaurants, and there were the, 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 the sandwiches. And then over here were the, milk sh uh, the desserts, and milkshake was a line item in the dessert menu. And these guys were very sophisticated. So they had a profile of the quintessential customer that liked each of those individual products. And so they had a, they had a profile of the quintessential milkshake consumer. And I read the milkshake, uh, the characteristics, and I thought, holy cow, this is Clay Christensen right there. <laughs> and uh, so they invite people like me into... Uh, conference rooms, and they'd say, could you please tell us how we can improve the milkshakes so you buy more of them? And they get very clear feedback. They would then improve the products in the ways that the customer said, and it had no impact on sales or profits whatsoever. So as we were thinking about this, we realized the unit of analysis is the job, not the customer. And so we stood in a restaurant one day for 18 hours and ve took very careful data. Whenever somebody bought a, a milkshake, what were they buying? What time did they buy it? What were they wearing? Were they alone? Did they buy other food with it? Did they eat it in the restaurant or go off with it? And it turned out, as we added it up at the end of the day, that nearly half of the milkshakes were sold before 8 a.m. These were always... Uh, people were always alone. They, it's the only thing they bought, and they always got in the car and drove off with it. So to figure out what job they were trying to do, we came back the next day and we stood outside the restaurant so that we could confront these people as they're coming out with their milkshake. <laughs> and we say, look, I see what you're just doing here, but I got to understand what job were you trying to do that caused you to come here and hire that milkshake? And they'd struggle. And so we'd say, to try to help them, we'd say, well, think about the last time you were in the same situation, needing to get the same job done, but you didn't come here to hire the milkshake. What did you hire? And it turned out that they all had the same job to do in the morning. And that is, they had a long and boring drive to work. And they just needed to do something while they drove to keep themselves occupied. One hand had to be on the wheel, but geez, somebody gave him another uh, ha hand and there wasn't anything in it. 
And I just needed something to do while I was driving. I wasn't hungry yet, but I knew I was going to be hungry by 10 o'clock, so they also needed something that would just funk down and stay there for the morning. <laughs> Boy, I never thought about it this way before, but you know, last Friday I hired a banana. Take my word for it, never hire bananas. <laughs> They're gone in three minutes. You're hungry by 7.30. If you promise you won't tell my wife, I hire donuts twice a week. They're better, but they're not very good. They crumb all over my clothes. They're gone too, too fast. It gets my fingers gooey. Yeah, I hire uh, bagels on occasion, but, geez, they're so dry and tasteless. I have to steer with my knees while I put the cream cheese on. <laughs> and then if the phone rings, we got big trouble. If you look under the, the seat, uh, you'll see a Snickers bar. Um, wrapper, and that's because I hired Snickers bar once, but I felt so guilty. I've just, I've never done that again. <laughs> but let me tell you, when I come here and hire this milkshake, it is so viscous, I can't even pour it out. And it takes me 25 minutes to suck it up, that thin little straw. <laughs> Who cares what the ingredients are? I don't. I'm just, I know I'm full for the whole morning. And it fits right in my cup holder. And it turns out that the milkshake does the job better than any of the competitors. And the, the competitors are not Burger King milkshakes. But it's bananas, donuts, uh, bagels, Snickers bars, coffee, and so on. And then it turned out in the later afternoon and evening, it was hired for a fundamentally different job. Primarily by fathers who have been saying no to their kids all week long, and they've just been something that they can say yes to so that their kids will think of them as kind parents. <laughs> and so I'm standing at the counter, and I order my meal, and then my son Spence orders his meal, and then he looks up at me, and he says, Dad, could you buy me a milkshake? And I put my hand on his arm, and I say, Spence, I would love to give you a milkshake. And I say that it has nothing to do with Spence, but I just want to feel good about myself, you know. And so you watch what happens there. It's, it's uh, consumed in the, the uh, restaurant with other, uh, with other food and with other people. And I finish my meal, and then Spence finishes his meal, and then the kid picks up that crummy milkshake. And let me tell you, it is so viscous. It takes the kid forever to suck it up that thin little straw. You know, and I wait patiently for a while. And then I wait impatiently for a while. <laughs> and then I say, look, Spence, we can't stay here all, all night. And so we throw it away half consumed. Well, then they invite me as a, as a customer who buys milkshakes and say, so, Clay, how can we improve the milkshakes so you buy more of them? What am I going to say? Because I hire it for two fundamentally different products. And then when they, they combine my response with all of the other 45 to 65-year-old male slobs with children, and they get a one-size-fits-none product that doesn't do any of the jobs that it's been hired to do. But I hope that you can see how, if you understand the job, 
then you understand how to improve it so that it does the job even better. And it turns out that they were improving the milkshake on a trajectory of performance that was irrelevant to the jobs for which it was hired. So for the morning, how would you improve it? Well, you want to make it even bit more viscous, right, to take longer to suck it up. You stir in tiny chunks of fruit, but not to make it healthy because they don't hire it to become healthy but to just bring variety and unpredictability to a boring commute. And I just, on occasion, I'd go, and it would wake <laughs> me up. And then you'd move the dispensing machine from behind the counter to the front of the counter and give people a prepaid swipe card so they could just dash in, ga gas up and go and never get caught in the line. And the other afternoon job would be a totally different concept. But I hope that you can see how understanding the job to be done is really critical. Um, Peter Drucker, who's a lot smarter than me, saw the same thing long before I did when he said the customer rarely buys what the, the company thinks it's selling him. And I would just say that without any background of substance, that the probability that a software product will be successful is somewhere near zero if the concept was developed in a company that has decided what the customer wants. And um, you develop a product, and then you find they don't buy it. And so then you have to hire, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of people like this, but we call them marketers. And the reason you have to have a marketer is you're trying to convince the customer that they need to buy the product that you decided they need. If instead you understand the job the customer is trying to do, you actually don't need much marketing because customers will pull it into their lives. And almost always, those companies had somebody who was on the other side who knew the job. And it's, it's understanding the job that's the critical uh, insight in, in short supply. It's not the ability to make products. Mark? This might be profound. We'll see. But can you speak that way so they can hear you? Yeah. Does this, does this explain Apple? It actually does to a remarkable degree. Um, and I don't think that Jobs brought unique technological ability to the enterprise, but he just watched what people are trying to do and could think about how, we, how could we help people what they're trying to do even better. And I think that was the key insight. And I hope that, you know, they, they um, I don't mean to say this in a self-serving way, but apparently in his autobiography that's going to come out, um, he, uh, he only cited one business uh, book that he that said had a imp an important influence on him. And it was the one that I wrote. And I think that this is, uh, this is why it isn't that I wrote a great book, but this is an important idea. Other thoughts? Yes. Do you think that there was 
do I think Google is making a mistake creating or shutting down their labs? Um, how do I want to say this? I think that it's a huge mistake, but what I worry about is that they're the or the 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 con the the generation of new products comes from marketing people who uh, are thinking that they're trying to understand what the customer wants. And it's not connected with what the people in the labs were working on. And if instead they take the, I mean, some of the nicest people I know are marketing people, and so I don't want to say bad things about them. But um, if, if you get the, the job nailed, you actually don't need marketing. Customers will pull it into their lives, talk about it to their friends, you know. And so the people in the labs need to be out in the, in the world watching what people are trying to do and do it better. And oh my gosh, I bet, I bet they would come up with so many more great ideas that connect. Whereas what you see is failure after failure. And it's not the job, the problem is not in the labs, in my view. Yes. His, his point is, in a, in a big company that, that is public, how do you deal with the um, pressure of the, um, for short-term uh, result, results? There are uh, two answers to that. One is that you have to begin investing in the next products long before the core businesses have become mature. Because if the core business is still healthy, then you can invest in these new things and those guys won't notice it. If you wait until the core business is, is mature and then you start it up, th what they demand is that it gets really big really fast. And that's almost always impossible in a disruption. So it's odd, but you need to invest when you don't need it. And if you need it, you're doomed. And then the other, if, if in fact you're, you're doomed to failure, then you should just leave the company and become a professor at the Harvard Business School. Because <laughs> all you got to do is talk about it. You don't have to do anything. Now... There are four levels in a job. If you understand the first one, which is the basic job to be done, then it allows you to say now, so what are all the experiences in purchasing the product and using the product that we got to provide in order to nail the job perfectly? And very often we just think about the product and don't, don't think about 
from our point of view, we just have to make a product. From the customer's point of view, though, they got to deal with this thing. And dealing with it entails experiences. If you know what experiences you got to provide, then you can ask this question, oh gosh, so what do we have to integrate into the product and how do we integrate it so that we could provide the experiences to get the job done? And just as a discipline, that's actually really important because in a, a software product, the downside is that it's actually really easy to add more and more features. And uh, the more features you add, the often the more complicated it becomes. And, uh, and this just provides a little bit of guidance or discipline to you. And if you know what you have to integrate, then you can build a purpose brand. And I'll try to describe what I mean by that. Um, where products are easy to copy, integration around a job, this is, we know what we have to integrate, how we have to integrate it in order to provide the experiences to get the job done. It's in the experiences that we give and the way we integrate it, that seems to be what's hard for competitors to copy. Uh, jobs are very t stable over a long period of time. They're not vulnerable to product life cycles. For example, there's a job out there needing to be done, which is, you know, I got to get this from here to there with perfect certainty as fast as possible. And this, occur so it's there whether or not you actually need that today. The job is there. And if you find out on one day you have that job to do, um, it turns out that Julius Caesar had that job to do. And uh, back then, all he could hire to get the job done was a horseman with the chariot. Now we have FedEx. And so the technology to get the job done changes over time, but the job itself is very stable over time. Um, there's another job out there, which is I don't have time uh, to read what I ought to read, but I need to come across to other people as being articulate and well-informed. And uh, George Washington had this job to do. And there weren't people providing much to help him uh, fake people that he was really informed. And Clay Christensen has the same job to do. And there are much better ways of me to, you know, pull into my lives things to make myself more, make, make it appear like I'm intelligent. Um, but the job is very stable. And that's actually really important for marketing because what it means is that the idea of a product life cycle isn't relevant in this world. Understanding the job is very stable if, and we just need to understand it more and more. And when you develop a product that does a job well, the customers are quite happy to pay a premium price. You notice when in download music, people tried to offer it for free and it was kludgy. And then Apple, when they came in with the, the iPod, um, 
they really got the job done, and my gosh, we were just thrilled to pay a dollar per per uh, so per track. Yeah. Another way to visualize it is um, there's a job out there that my my son Mike found himself needing to get done uh, last summer. Called me up one day and he said, Dad. I'm moving in my new house tomorrow, and I got to furnish the house tomorrow. And when that job arises in your life, the word IKEA pops into your mind. And IKEA has been trying to roll itself out around the world for 40 years, and nobody has copied IKEA. Nobody. It's not that they have secrets. It's not that there's no money in it. Their owner is the third richest guy in the world, and yet nobody's copied him. And my sense is that the reason is they're organized themselves around a job to be done. They provide the experiences, and they're in integrated in the right way to nail that job perfectly. And it has this brand, which we call a purpose brand, which pops into people's mind when they have that job to do. And I could go down all of those things, and most of them would say they have no competition. Um, if you talk to people at SAS, for example, uh, one of their businesses is my darn, there is nobody that's going to compromise the data about our customers. And they would tell you they don't have competition because they're organized in a different way. Um, I want to... This is another idea that I think might help you look into the future. Um, so if I want to go back, the model of disruption, how do I kill other people and have them not kill me? The second one, competing against non-consumption is the way to create big new pro uh, products with simple, big new markets with simple products. And then the third one is, if I try to listen to the customer, it will m mislead me. I need to understand the job. The next one, I want to just suggest that sometimes a way to catch a new wave is to change the basic business model. And I'll apply this to... Um, um, products for online learning. It turns out that there are three types of business models in the whole world. Um, the first one we call a solution shop business. A solution shop business is somebody who, sol who defines your problem and recommends solutions. So McKinsey and Company, I don't know if you've ever experienced them. They're a solution shop business. You pay them a ton of money. And they'll come in and tell you what your problems are and recommend solutions. The activities that go in in a hospital where they're trying to figure out what's wrong with you is a, solu a solution shop type of business. Um, solution shop businesses get their, their money on a fee-for-service basis. And in... Um, Healthcare, people are really worried that all healthcare is paid on a free fee for service basis in most of America. 
it turns out that for this particular business, that's critical. And then the second type is a crazy, crazy word, but is a process-related business where you stuff businesses in one end that are not complete or broken, and you do stuff to it, and then you shift it out the other end. And so most manufacturing is like that, but education is a process business. We bring in 900 incomplete young people to the Harvard Business School every fall, and then we do stuff to it, and we ship them out perfected to Wall Street at the end of two years. <laughs> and that kind of a business, the business model, is they make money on a fee for use, or I'm sorry, fee for outcome. Um, and medical procedures that are done after they decided what's wrong with you is a, a process business where you can uh, pay for the result rather than for the input. And then the third one is a facilitated network um, like telecom. I, I send data to you, you send data to me. Um, and a lot of organizations are emerging to help patients take, for, take care of each other, like D-Life for diabetes and so on. And educational software, I think, is historically has been in the middle and I think is coming on the right-hand side. These guys make their money typically on a fee for me me membership uh, ra and sometimes on a key for trans uh, per transaction, but it tends to move towards membership. Um, what's, what's been doing historically is the, the textbook business. Somebody comes up with an idea, write a book, uh, then you try to convince a publisher to accept it. If they decide that they'll take it on, then you, you uh, print the books. And then you got every district in America to, to ad adopt your textbook. And then and only then can the teacher teach it. But it's a, it's a process by which that's done. In uh, online uh, cost or online software, most companies have tried to replicate this business but do it online. And so they'll develop a class which is um, ninth grade algebra. And by doing it in the same way, geez, the only way those guys will accept ninth, ninth grade algebra online is if we can, if we can prove that it's better than having a teacher uh, teach ninth, ninth grade geometry online. And that's a very difficult thing to pull off when you are uh, competing on a head-on basis back in the blue space on the earlier. But I think what will happen instead, and those things cost hundreds of millions of dollars to develop the software. I think what will happen instead is that it will e e evolve into a facilitated network where parents who are trying to develop little tools for their children to get better at spelling or teachers who develop a product for particular students who are way ahead or way behind or students who develop these things for each other 
has facilitated uh, entrepreneurs. At the beginning, these products will just be little tools that they can teach, use for each other to tutor each other. They don't try to take on a course. And then those things kind of add up into modules, and the modules can then be uh, combined into custom classes. Um, but my guess is that, that those pieces will be um, interacted, uh, exchanged in a network. And that's a very different business model than the ones that we have today. But it's really quite exciting. And uh, if we can think about it in those words, sometimes where if we're going to take on an ex existing competitor and we've got to beat them in their market with their business model, boy, there are a lot of failures. But if we think about, geez, maybe we could have a very different business model, then the, the barriers are not as onerous. So that was the next thing I wanted to talk about. I have one more, but... Any questions or comments from this or any of the other ideas that we had back there? That's a great question. So if you're starting the new stuff and the old ones can get pretty left over and bored or whatever because they're almost always, and this is not an exaggeration, if they think about the, cons the concept of the business they're in by the job to be done, what almost always happens is they think that, in, if you go back to the milkshake, so they thought that they had overshot what customers could use as evidenced by they kept improving the product and it had no impact on what the customers bought. But once you understood the job to be done, oh my gosh, what we thought was overshot actually was not doing the job well enough. And it allowed them to kind of flip back to the left-hand side and... Uh, make an integrated solution that nailed it perfectly. And I bet if some doctoral student would come to our shop and go back our studies of, of disruption, a lot of times when it seemed as if they had overshot, in reality, from a job's point of view, it wasn't good enough. And so that can bring in really quite extraordinary uh, insight and excitement into the traditional job. That's a great question. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of two things. You've got to figure out by watching them and living with them, what's the job they're trying to do? And then think about, so what are, they, what are they hiring to get the job done? Sometimes they're doing all kinds of workarounds. This is, this is actually a really funny story. 
So McDonald, uh, the uh, Procter and Gamble has been using this a lot for the last number of years, not trying to understand the job but the customer. And uh, so one of their um, people was sitting in an audience like this and looked at um, the seatmate's uh, suit. And it was a dark suit and it was well polished or well cre cre creased. Thank you. Um, but man, did he smell bad. And uh, then they realized that, you know, sometimes you don't need it dry clean because whether it's dry or dirty or not, you can't tell. But you sure can tell when they, sp sp they smell bad. And that's how they came up with tr uh, for a breeze. And uh, so you, you just got to kind of have to watch what people around you are doing and uh, figure out, is there a cheaper way to get the same do job done? That's a great question. One more, and then I'll go to this last piece. The notion of jobs to be done could be used for continuous innovation as well, right? Yes, Yeah. Okay. that's right. right. It's, so it's not yeah, jobs to be done applies to everything. And that's a different question. So disruption is, how can I be sure I kill them rather than they kill me? And that's a separate thing. And now we ought to understand disruptive or sustaining. I just be, got to be darn sure that the customers are going to pull it into their lives because you harness the causal mechanism behind a, a decision. That's a great, great point, sir. Thank you. Let me just... Um, The Harvard Business School, we are getting disrupted by crummy, low-end, on-the-job learning experiences like you're having right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> this is just a, a, one thought I wanted to share with you because we're all living here and at some point we might invite or vote for the next a, 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 a choice in presidential candidates and and they keep raising the question of why don't we have new jobs and it looks like the economy seems to be getting better because of the profits keep getting uh, put in the bank but there are no jobs and as I've worked on this problem I just decided that the core reason truly is the finance professors at, at business schools. And I think you've, I've part, put this finger at most members of our faculty, but this one is a big deal. And the reason is that for whatever reason, our faculty have decided that we should measure profitability by ratios. And so you have uh, internal rate of return and uh, what internal rate of return does is it forces you to try to pull in the, uh, th the cash flow as close to the beginning as possible and so the more you focus on internal rate of return the shorter the time horizon of the investors 
And uh, RONA, net, uh, return on net assets, is a ratio. And uh, that causes you to try to get assets off the balance sheet. And, and you do that by outsourcing. Um, we'll, uh, I, I could go through some of these others. Um, and it's those measures at its core that's causing us not to create new jobs. And um, I'll describe how, and I don't know that this is true, but these are just my thoughts. Um, Innovations, there, there's one type of innovation that I'm, you might call efficiency innovations. That is how to make things at lower cost. And generally, efficiency innovations take jobs out of the economy. What creates jobs and put them into the economy are disruptions, where you make something affordable and accessible so that a larger population can, can now have access to it. And when you ever, you make something that creates more people who are able to own and use it, then people have to hire more people to make it. And, and that's been historically <coughs> the causal mechanism behind um, the creation of, of true growth. <coughs> and over the last 15 years, there are not nearly as many of these disruptions uh, than there were previously. And so the cloud, of course, is a huge disruption. Online learning. <coughs> Sorry, I got something. <coughs> um, but there, we're not making nearly as many of those as we used to. And, uh, and I think it's because of the way we measure things. So net present value, <coughs> what do you do? Well, you, you foresee the cash flows from investing in an innovation, and then you compare that with the assumption of what if we do nothing, we compare it to what there are today, and so the net present value and DCF implicitly in the math compare that cash flow versus the base case, which is if we don't do it. But in reality, if we don't do it, things get worse on a nonlinear trajectory. And so by its very nature, those measures underestimate the, the return of innovation of any sort. I'll skip over this one. If you are outsourcing to get assets off the balance sheet, you um, liquidate the company. And I'll just go through this example between Asustec, which is a Taiwan company, and Dell. And Dell at the high end it still has a a robust business, but at the bottom, in the consumer products, they've been disrupted in this way. So Asustec started by making the simple circuit boards in a Dell computer, and then Asustec came to him with an interesting value proposition. You know, we've been doing the simple ones. Come to think of it, 
you ought to be doing the motherboards because motherboard technology is our competence, not yours. And if you let us do it, we could do it for 20% lower cost. And Dell's analysts looked at it and realized, geez, they could. And if we gave them the motherboard, not only could we reduce cost by 20%, but we could get all of the circuit manufacturing assets off the balance sheet. It's very capital intensive. So they shoveled that over. Uh, uh, Dell's revenues were unaffected, but their profitability improved as they got out of the motherboard business. Asystec's revenues improved, and their profits improved as they got into the business. And then a couple of uh, years later, Asystec came back with an interesting value proposition. You know, we've been doing the motherboard. Come to think of it, that's the guts of the computer. You shouldn't have to bother yourselves with assembling all the other junk. Because um, assembly isn't your core competence, it's ours. And if we, let if we did it, we could do it for 20% lower cost. And Dell's analysts looked at it and realized, geez, they could. And if we have them do assembly, not only could we reduce cost by 20%, but we could get all the other manufacturing assets off the balance sheet. So they shoveled that over. Dell's revenues were unaffected, but their profitability improved as they got out of assembly. And Asustec's revenues and profits improved as they got into assembly. And then Asustec came back with an interesting value proposition. <laughs> you know, dealing with all those crummy suppliers of the components and working out all the logistics headaches and shipping the stupid computers to your dumb customers, <laughs> managing the supply chain isn't your core competence, it's ours. And if you let us do it, we could do it for 20% less. And Dell's analysts looked at it and realized, holy cow, they could. And if we gave the supply chain, not only could we re reduce costs by 20%, but we could get all of that current assets off the balance sheet. So they shoveled that over. Dell's revenues, effect, uh, revenues were unaffected, but now their profit really starts to look good, especially return on assets because they got no assets. <laughs> and Asustec's revenues improved and their profitability improved as they got into value-adding services. And then Asustec came back a couple of years later with an interesting value proposition. You know, the design of these dumb computers really is little more than component selection. We got all those relationships cold. There's no reason why you should have to bother to design the stupid custom our com computers. And we could do it for 20% lower cost. And Dell's analysts looked at it and realized, geez, they could. And if we had them design it, we could fire all of our engineers, drive costs lower, because our, our core competence is our brand, after all. And so they shoveled that over, same thing result. And then Asustec came back one more time. But this time they didn't come to Dell, they came to Best Buy. <laughs> you know, I don't understand why you had, had need to have those, those brands, Compaq and Dell and Hewlett Packard. We'll give you our brand, your brand, any brand at 20% lower cost, and bingo. One is gone, the other takes its place. And I was able to use the word, to tell the whole story without using the word stupid manager once. Because at least as we define it, there's no stupidity involved on either side. Um, but in the end, um, the first step seems to be 
attractive, but you need to think about where it ends. And we do this all throughout the economy. We outsource IT to the Indians who are very capable. They outsource uh, the component, comp the auto companies outsource to the tier one suppliers. Uh, the oil companies are becoming marketing companies ads, 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 and the pharmaceutical companies are doing the same thing. And the Wall Street analysts are outsourcing their brains to Bloomberg, <laughs> which is a good thing overall. <laughs> and I, I had a conversation, you know, in the semiconductor industry, um, Intel still makes its own chips, but they're basically the only ones of substance that still makes their chips in America, and everyone else gets them abroad. And, uh, and there's almost a, a badge of when you become a s fabulous semiconductor company that pe people admire you for having gotten all those assets off the balance sheet because you can be flexible and, and so on. And uh, I went over to, on a tour in Taiwan and, and China, and this is the puzzle that I had. So it co costs today about $10 billion to build a new fab. And so you have the Americans over here with just this uh, fixation on we, gotta, we can't put assets on our balance sheet. And so they want to build companies without assets. And the people who do them are, sure, we'll, do an Ill, we'll build a new fab for $10 billion, and I'm quite happy to leave it on the balance sheet. And so why do these want it off, and these people are quite happy to have it on? And it's not because we are uh, short of capital. We're awash in capital. But talking to one of the, the leaders, is T TSMC, I asked him this question, and he said, yeah, you Americans measure profitability by ratios, and by doing that, you can compare one to another. But there's a subtle problem with that, and that there are no banks that accept deposits denominated in percentages. <laughs> and he said, there's actually another way to, to measure a profit, and it's not by percentages, but he says, the way we measure it is tons of money. And it actually doesn't matter uh, how much assets are employed because we generate tons of money. And, uh, and I, I think as a consequence of measuring it in the way that we have, that we, there's almost like this cocoon of finance people measuring profitability by INR and RONA and it's created a massive capital in America that I would characterize as migratory capital. And they're just trying to go, they're trying to find a company and they'll put money into it. And the minute their company is in, they want to get it out. And they want to get out, pull more out than they put in. And if they play that game well, they think that they are generating value added and profitability. And but that migratory capital 
is what causes us then to do these kinds of things with a very short-term time horizon and outsource stuff that could have been our core competence if we wanted to. So I don't know that this is true or not, but I've been thinking about it. And, uh, and I actually think again that the business schools are right at the core of the problem. So I'm sorry. <laughs> a couple of questions and we can end, yes. Is this going to be a good question? <laughs> All of these people are waiting. So. Something that's closer to all of us, uh, as an example of what you were just saying. I won't tell the name of the company because it's uh, well known by all of you. And we're discussing this, this work. We, we consult with software companies and we're discussing with them uh, what their model is. And one of their measures is exactly contribution margin. And as you said, it makes all the sense by all the managers and everybody. But everyone in the company is somehow measured by that. And we're discussing how that the whole thing works and we're looking at the process and how they're selling this whole thing. We just find out that they have, in some of their products, a target of 80% on their distribution uh, subsidiaries. And that's a terrific margin and that's everything is just fine. And then we start to look at what they were doing and what the customers they're addressing. And we identify huge potential in customers where they would have to put some additional effort. And we ask, okay, now you have the ability to do that. Why don't you? And they say, because we're going to be spending some more money to address those customers and that will give us just 50% contribution margin. Yeah. And we'll drop our final margin and we have our bonuses on top of it. Yeah. And I say, okay, I, I just un totally understand that if you cannot address both folks, you're just going to go to the bigger money. Yeah. But you have the money, you have the people, you have the ability to do it. And they say, we don't want to lower our margin. So yeah. Yeah. they just are going for the, 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 the percentages and not for the ton of money. Yeah, that's a great thing. I, I think the, the Brits and the Americans have this, this disease the most. And the, the Germans are, don't, aren't aff afflicted by it as much. And the Asians do even better. One last question, sir. Yeah, the question is uh, spinning it off and, and uh, Netflix, how'd they get in that trouble? They really had two conflicting theories at work here. So one is they had two business models inside of the company and doing it on down uh, on demand or over the internet um, is a kind of disruptive business to the physical get the DVD bout and back. The more you do this, the less this kind of... And so they wanted to separate those. But on the other hand, from a job to be done point of view, um, you needed to have it all together because they compete against each other for the job and which one does the job better depends upon where I am and what time it is and all those kinds of things. And I think that the challenge is how to get your cake and eat it 
too. So keep the thing <coughs> coherent from a customer point of view and then s keep them separate and, and from a, um, an operating point of view so that you can, this can grow and gl gradually that can die. And I think it had to be either or. But it's, uh, I'm not as smart as Reed, you know, so we can see that in retrospect, but he's taught us a lot from it. It's a great question. Well, you guys, you've been very patient, so thanks for giving me this time. <laughs>